Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? Yes, welcome to this first Athens in Jerusalem podcast. My name is Knut Oversee. Together with me is Cameron Namdar and Stephen Phelps. Me, I'm a philosopher uh, from Norway, uh, living in Oslo. And uh, Cameron, would you introduce yourself? Yes, hello. Um, I'm Cameron um, uh, from Sweden, uh, Westeros, a little city in Sweden. And um, I'm in general terms an educationalist. Yeah. And, and Stephen, you are actually in Portland? Yes, I am living in, in Portland, Oregon, sunny Portland this week. Uh, and I have a cosmology background. And I am a part-time armchair philosopher. Nice. <laughs> I, I like I like the idea of armchairing philosophy. I, I think I I think often we understand philosophy as something that is only for people with education, but I think philosophy is for everybody to exactly. Sorry, I, I was just gonna say that I, I think what also seems to unite us all is that we are amateurs. Now, in the original sense of the word, you know, the, the word amateur is usually understood as someone who is not really good at something or is not. But but originally, uh, the word amateur meant someone who actually loves something or what, what they're doing. And they're not doing it for, for reasons of earning money or something, but just because of the love of it. And so so I think we are, yes, amateur armchair philosophers. And that's that's a great position to be in. Yes, and I hope the listeners on this podcast, they also could have the same feeling of amateurship as yes. we we have. When we are. <laughs> so we, we hopefully we, we're going to do some armchair philosophy with you all. And um, so, so why, why Athens and Jerusalem? What is, uh, what is this podcast all about, Cameron? Well, I mean, um, I can just give uh, my own personal angle as an educationalist because um, working with uh, schools and young people at schools, um, children at schools, you soon come to realize uh, something that also research and statistics show that that young people in today's world, um, many of them, are not very well. They're, they are depressed or stressed or sort of have a general experience of emptiness in life. And um, this is usually explained in in psychological terms because um, I think that in our modern scientific approach, we we sort of categorize everything that is not uh, purely cognitive as as psychological. And um, so... So this has been seen as some sort of a psychological crisis of the young people. But I think that there is something much deeper to this. 
And I think um, the the reason why so many young people all over the world, especially in the Western world, are not feeling very well is is not just because of the kind of obvious psychological reasons that have to do with uh, their awareness of global threats or or um, uh, the, the way that their self-esteem is regulated by by social media and things like that. But I think that there's a more general sort of sense of emptiness, if one can say so, um, a lack of true meaning and purpose, a lack of um, possibility of seeing one's life as something meaningful in, in existence, in relationship to existence. And um, and I think we can see some, some very tragic um, examples of this. For instance, some time ago, this very very loved and, and skilled and famous Swedish musician, Avicii, uh, committed suicide. Someone who by any standards of our times was uh, successful, he was, he was successful, he was well off, he was financially well off, he was loved, he was popular, his, his music uh, was appreciated. And yet, and this is this is what his family actually said, that the reason why he took his life at a young age was because he confronted existential issues to which he could not find answers. Yes. And um, I think that um, the fact that our educational system um, is mainly focusing on... Uh, trying to get scientific knowledge, subject knowledge over to students uh, and not uh, addressing issues that have to do with existential meaning or uh, ethical issues or aesthetic matters. Uh, this is uh, something which creates a, a sense of emptiness in young people's lives. And and of course, this is not just a, this is not of of course this is not a problem of the school system because this is only in within school system this is only a reflection of what is happening in society at large. I mean, and it's not only obviously young people who are feeling this this emptiness and 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 lack of meaning. I think this is a general sort of characteristic of the times in which we are living, and um, there's this paradoxality in in, in our times that. On the one hand, we we have this unbelievable amount of knowledge and technology at our disposal, and then the knowledge I think is is doubling currently at some some unbelievable rate of uh, every twelve hours or something like that. And yet, in contrast to that, and 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 while of course all this knowledge and technology has brought us many blessings and and has solved many of our problems, it has left many even traditional problems unsolved such as poverty or or war or, or the like but it has also created some new ones uh, maybe one of the most prominent one of them is uh, the um, environmental and, and climate crisis that we're facing as, as humanity Okay. So, thank, so thank, okay. Yeah, because I, I think Cameron, you you are bringing up a, a lot of questions and a lot of different kind of possibilities of what we could talk about. So uh, I think also Stephen would say something. But but before I just because I, I I think if if this podcast could uh, help people actually uh, creating a language for our existential problems or our existential living and. Uh, helping people to 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 bring forth new understandings or new uh, concepts to help them to uh, yeah with the mind or the their um, consciousness i think that would be really uh, really uh, nice if we we could do something like that but and i also think that the, the education system I, i'm i'm not sure actually if uh, that okay we we you you call you say that we ha we bring a, we have a lot of knowledge um, into the, the school systems, but is it really knowledge or is it just information? I mean, uh, 
in 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 my philosoph philosophical background, I would say that one of one of the problem with the modern understanding of uh, knowledge is that we are we are we are missing out wisdom, uh, insight, uh, the, these kind of uh, questions or this kind of um, thinking uh, that is not. Um, yeah, it, it may not be part of the scientific knowledge, but it's still knowledge. Or then we have to maybe we have to broaden our understanding of science to um, so so we could give uh, wisdom a, a larger part of um, yeah the school systems and also our language. Yeah, so Stephen, what what is your uh, uh, what, why Athens and Jerusalem? Well, I, I share with, with both of you this, this sense that we are a, a civilization in a state of, of crisis. I, I believe this crisis, as, as much as it feels like a crisis of the present hour, of the present moment, and it is in a way, and and what, what Kamran mentioned, these new statistics on on the mental health of our youth is an example of of where things seem to be taking a, a, a trend towards towards the worse. At the same time, the roots of this crisis can be seen going back historically, at least a few centuries. It's been a long time coming. And I think understanding something about the roots of the of the crisis, which we can call a crisis of meaning in the world, Understanding something about the historical roots of those crises of this crisis can help us, perhaps, understand what we might do about it and how we might go forward. And I think the roots of this crisis have have a lot to do with something which was a tremendous success for civilization, which has brought us uh, incredibly forward in terms of material advancement. And I'm speaking of the scientific revolution, and I'm speaking of the Enlightenment. And this revolution in human thought that they that they both brought uh, a revelation, uh, a revolution and a revelation really of of how the world works, based on um, based on understanding the world in physical terms, based on a way of understanding the world that breaks it into parts, that analyzes the pieces, that approximates the world as comprised of separate atoms and that approximation has been so enormously successful and it's brought the world forward so far in terms of our understanding and and mastery of our physical environment but there's if you can say a dark side of that tremendous success which is this dissolution of a world which was once enchanted which was once filled with uh, interconnectivity, a meaning overarching everything, um, a meaning which was understood in 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 very traditional theological terms as the the providence of a loving God in the world that uh, was responsible for the you know the progress and movement of all things. That narrative has. Uh, has been undermined really fatally by this success of our understanding of the world in material terms, an understanding of the world as resolved and divided into parts. And so we we're we're living in this in this world today in, in a modern world in which the traditional meanings have been drained out, in which our traditional narratives, particularly our traditional sacred narratives, have been have been undermined. And we're left with a world which we master to such an incredible degree, but a world in which we exist as separate entities fundamentally, separate from each other, just as atoms are fundamentally separate from other atoms. And it's a world that's fundamentally as well drained of overarching meaning. It's a world in which everything is explained by immediate the immediate impact of forces. We see things in terms of causes and effects at a very um and a very let's say local level uh and we don't see or recognize there being any 
trends on a much larger level, it, unless it's the trend of entropy of everything running down uh, and finally uh, of everything finally dying in the end and and, uh, and, uh, and everything becoming more disordered. So understanding, I think, something of the, of the root of the present day crisis, which is a which is a crisis of meaning, can help us ask the question, can we recover that meaning? Can we re-enchant the universe? Have it's it's having been so disenchanted by something which has been such a tremendous step leap forward in human civilization, a tremendous leap forward in human consciousness, but at the same time, it has not come without its cost. And in trying to ask this question, how can we re-enchant the world? We realize at the same time that we can't do it by going backwards to old ways of thinking. We can't do it by returning to the theologies of the past, by returning to these, these narratives of the past. But we have to do it somehow by, by a rebirth of meaning and, and a rebirth of, of the magic of things, but in terms of the scientific understanding of the world that we've gained. And whether that comes through um, through a re-understanding of what is science and what is a scientific method, or whether it comes through a re-understanding of what is spirit and what what are these uh, these ultimate goods that have been um, that have been described in in traditional theological terms, is is the question that lies before us. It, my my personal suspicion is that it's more the latter than the former. It, it's more a matter of uh, of re revisioning uh, and re-understanding spirit and what we mean by spirit, what we mean by meaning and purpose. I, I don't think it, it is as much going to lie in the direction of finding a new way of doing science. Uh, thanks, Stephen. I, 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 um, I follow you, uh, uh, but 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 if I should try to okay how to rebirth or how to um, to develop science or or um, maybe maybe I could rather talk about truth because I I, I think the word truth uh, or what truth is 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 a problem actually in in the in our society and especially in the in the intellectual academic society we we I, th I think we often um especially after the postmodernist uh, area there has been a lot of uh, uh even so, so, some are just saying that knowledge and so, there's something that is created by human is constructed by the human beings and it's only a question of language but i i think if if we should I think we we have to and um, we have to try to visualize or to 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 feel the what truth could be as some as a phenomena that is actually existing in the world mm -hmm. as something that exists and if we if we try to then then maybe we could make truth actually something that is sacred and something that is mystical in in some way uh that is also um uh, it helps i think that would let's talk if if it's, you, you you said spirit uh if if you say soul uh how, how is do we do we actually do we dare to talk about uh, human with soul or with a spirit today and yeah Especially in the academic uh, society, this is this is uh, especially in Norway and Sweden. I guess it's it's very problematic to to use words like this because um, yeah we we are not able to defend the defend the, the the possibility of truth as something that actually exists or the soul as something that exists um, mm. by our scientific um, way of of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, this problem of of truth is in some way the real central problem of the of of the present day in in which our our traditional concept of truth 
let's say, prior to this great intellectual revolution of the last few centuries, is that truth was something that comes down from above. Truth is something which is given by, say, a prophet or, you know, revealed by a sage. Uh, it's it's often, you know, present, you know, between the, the pages, in the pages of a book. Uh, it's something which has authoritative sources which cannot be challenged. And, um, and our closest approach to the truth would be going backwards in time to where that truth was, the moment when that truth was sent down or revealed. And so that gave us a kind of very essentialist, very backwards-looking view uh, of, of, of where the capital T truth could be found. But the process of the, of the last few centuries and, and this, in a way, destructive, uh, you know, corrosive, but at the same time, revolutionary and wonderful uh, process of, of, of humans' consciousness waking up to the realization that every human mind is capable of accessing reality. We all have this faculty within us of being able to understand reality, help to uh, help to undermine the idea that there were unchallengeable sources of truth. That truth was, in fact, something that we can collaborate collaborate on approaching closer to. That through the scientific method, we can build upon the truths that the previous generation uh, discovered. Uh, and make truth something which is social, something which is progressive, and something which is forward-looking, so that our closest approach to the truth now is something which is in the future rather than in the past. But this also comes at the cost when you let go of the idea that there's only one single unchallengeable source of truth, and you realize that truth is something that we're collaboratively trying to approach, we come upon the seemingly intractable problem that different people have different ideas about how to pursue truth. Uh, and although we might be able to agree on, on a very rudimentary level of what a physical measurement is, and that gives the physical sciences a certain advantage, let's say, in collaboratively building models of, of, of reality, you know, the moment you step outside the laboratory and into the real world, the world of people, uh, the messy world of, of, of social relationships, uh, the messy world of societies, the, the definitions, the, the baseline realities become much harder to find consensus around. Uh, and truth divides up then along different, different lines that don't necessarily converge. Uh, truths that are in, in some ways tribal or in some ways uh, uh, depending upon and, and deriving from uh, in, in, innate and in, intrinsic just differences between people, you know, how they, how they think about the world. Um, and that's a great challenge for us. If, you know, if we wanted to go back to, a, you know, an earlier model of truth, that's sort of something we all agree to, maybe that's not a possible future for us. Maybe the possible future is going to be a little bit messier. It's going to be something which involves a consultative process that invites and includes as many diverse perspectives as possible, that builds models of reality that are constantly open to critique and criticism that can be revised as more information comes in, uh, and that allows for for the for the innate variations in in human encounters with uh, with with reality. I'm talking not about different sorts of sciences, you know, different formulations, say, of the fundamental laws of physics, because those are are areas where we have, I think, the greatest possibilities of 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 coming to consensus about about reality. I'm thinking more about the truths that you know on the street matter the most to people you know what's what's the meaning of existence why are we here what's the best form of governing ourselves what's the best way of of managing economies you know the really complicated problems that you know that that we um that we actually deal with in the world 
Um, are we, uh, you know, is it a possible future for us that there that, that there's a consensus around one right way of doing things? Or are we going to have to find a stable equilibrium in a society that permits of diverse approaches? And that's something I think we haven't really solved. Um, and there's huge tension because there are, you know, there are these, you know, traditional groups that still are stuck on the idea that there is a single truth that everyone has to rally around. And if we can just convince everyone that this is the right way, then that's the solution. That's the way forward. That's the way, you know, to solve the problems of the of, of the present hour. Um, what okay. we haven't yet figured out how to do as a society is go forward preserving diversity, but at the same time achieving a degree of unity and consensus. It, it, my my uh, okay, because so, I I could follow you uh, in one one way, and then I think I think as as long as human is human, we will never find the the answers to the to the really huge or the deepest questions of existence and i i think we will always and i i think we need to search those questions and i think we also need to search them in a way that we believe that there must be some kind of answer to them that there exists some kind of um, truth in it uh, if not um, there will be very difficult to have like a public discussions on those questions because uh, we could all just say that but this is just my opinion or this is my private opinion and this is your mm -hmm. private opinion uh, mm -hmm. and and then we Actually, there will only be uh, a lot of uh, like seven billions monologues, and mm -hmm. we are not discussing anything. We are not we are not uh, participating in anything together. And I think we we need to, to if we are to have a public discussion on existential questions. I think we need to uh, to keep the possibility that truth could be existing but we will never reach it but maybe we could we could try to find out what is not true and we could also try to find out um i mean what is not valid as truth mm -hmm. I, I i think when, when i read like uh the old viking uh, wisdom i i can find still find a lot of truth in those wisdom words of wisdoms uh, and I think there th there are some possibilities that the human being actually could try or could. It's, it's not only a question of math. Uh, two mm -hmm. two two adding two is four, of course, and that would be it. It would always be four, even though every human being was um, dead. Then this mm -hmm. would still be. Uh, and I think. We could also say that we, we, we don't know our future. That's also a truth for me. And it's an important mm -hmm. truth. And yeah. um, and uh, the, to, to know that we are going to die. Yes, it's, mm -hmm. it's a truth. And it's it's uh, it's something that we is, is important for us to understand and to, to, to live by. So so I, I think we should try to um, we should try to differ between cultural particularities and universal truth mm -hmm. so we we have to we have to differ between um that we we know that this kind of uh, knowledge or wisdom has been has arrived from the, the 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 book from athen or the book from the viking age uh okay but let's not let's forget about the origin and start to ask the question what is valid what what mm -hmm. kind of uh, claims are actually valid or not and i think that's it is possible for human to to feel or to to understand to really understand that some claims are valid even though they mm -hmm. come from different cultures yeah that's a, that's a great point maybe one way to 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 
to rephrase what I was saying is that we want to avoid two extremes. You know, on the one extreme, as as you point out, we want to avoid um, the 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 completely unworkable future of there being seven billion completely separate opinions that uh, are all sovereign, um, and with there being no standard or uh, of discriminating between between um, between different versions of of what people think to be the truth, um, and on the other extreme, we want to avoid the kind of imposition of a monolithic conception of what truth is, because somewhere it's in between. Um, just looking at the history of thought, I mean, going back to the very first Greek philosophers who asked, you know, the big questions, um, you know, example being, um, you know, Her Heraclitus is, is an awesome starting point, and I'm sure we'll come back to this in, in future sessions. Um, but between... You know, as one of the ancient Greek philosophers who had an idea about the one and the many, uh, and he said, well, you know, reasoning according to the logos, he said, it's wise to believe that everything is one. But then you have other ancient Greek philosophers like Democritus, and Democritus said, well, everything is atoms in the end. It's just atoms in the void. And, and so you had from the very beginning of human attempts to understand the deepest questions, very different conceptions. Is everything one in the end, or is everything many in the end? And over the whole history of human thought, with like the combined efforts of, of the brightest people, we still haven't answered that question. And so if and and that's just one of the many fundamental questions raised by the ancient Greeks, none of for none of which we have a, a resolution. It's almost as though whatever ultimate reality is it is it is so designed so that it can't be categorized or or pigeonholed into into one single declarative statement um i think it was niels bohr one of the architects of of quantum mechanics who said something like it's it's a characteristic of the deepest truths that their opposites are equally true um and this is true in in quantum mechanics where you can have as as everyone has heard at, at some level, you can you can uh, formulate a system in terms of and understand it in terms of particles and interactions, <clears throat> or you could take these that same system and formulate it and observe it and understand it in terms of waves and particles and waves. Are, those are just two, you know, orthogonal representations of reality. They can't both simultaneously be true. And if that's true of the most fundamental elements of reality as as far as our physical understanding of, of, of the world is concerned could it not also be true in regard to uh other truths you know other meaningful statements that we can make um as humans in in the world um are there complementary perspectives maybe not an infinite number of equal perspectives it's not seven billion opinions but maybe there's you know a, a few you know maybe that's just two you know maybe uh, things tend to resolve into into polarities um and we see this or dualities and we see this in, in very fundamentally in the structure of the of the physical universe uh so many you know space and time and matter and energy and and so forth um things tend to resolve into complementary pairs uh and maybe that has something to do with the truths that we're trying to reach it's not that it it's going to it's not that we're ever going to 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 get at you know the correct way of understanding something, but because the opposite way of understanding is there's probably something to that as well. I think it's is is very interesting that you you, you talk about polarized uh, ideas and and dichotomies and um it's also a little bit funny because our uh, podcast is called Athens and Jerusalem and. To many, uh, that's uh, a dichotomy, and uh, so then it's very important for us to to try to to explain that we we will try to uh, to build uh, different kind of bridges, or um, maybe maybe there are no need for any bridges either, because may maybe the gap is just something we have constructed uh, in our language. So. so um, so that, I think that's, that, yeah, Cameron. 
Yeah, I mean, yes, I I was just thinking the same thought that, you know, in a way now the circle is closing. We're coming back to this, to the very idea of this uh, uh, series of podcasts uh, bringing Athens and Jerusalem together. And I think one thing that's, that seems to me to be um, of some interest is that that it, it looks like, um, yes, I mean, definitely, I think we have come to an age of uh, maturity of human thought where things that formerly seemed to be irreconcilable dichotomies can be now seen as complementary totalities. And thinking of Athens and Jerusalem, um, I've been reflecting that, that if we take the scientific rational approach alone without the complementary perspectives of, of existential and ethical um, points of view, then we actually end up in a world that is not rational. I mean, if you look at the world that we are living in today, is it rational? I mean, is it, is it rational that we kill each other? Is it rational that there's injustice? Is it rational that we are destroying our environment? I mean, obviously not. On the other hand, if we take um, existential, spiritual, or religious systems and, and um, separate them from a rational perspective, then we end up also in systems which actually are not any longer spiritual. I mean, is Talibanism something that is spiritual, that is that is promoting human flourishing? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's quite obvious that then when, that we, when we make this kind of a um, um, separation, which is really not in the in the perhaps nature of uh, reality, then then we end up with with uh, two extremes that are not even what they claim to be. The rationality is not rational, and the spirituality is not spiritual, and they require each other so that both could be what they claim to be, and and to be able to to sort of make their own own contribution. And I, I think um, this, this this issue of truth and you know one truth and and many truths has also maybe something to do with with um the confusing uh, what in philosophy is called ontology and epistemology i mean uh, we, we could perhaps based on what what we know from natural science say that yes there is an some sort of an objective truth but our possibility of understanding that in in some simple and um, uniform manner is is not there so so um, I, I think in that sense we can also bring together these ideas of of there being some sort of um yeah there, there, there's an ultimate truth but but never accessible in its totality to us human beings we can only gain approximations of it throughout time is it sufficient for us to believe is it sufficient for us you know culturally psychologically to believe as as with the scientists that that we don't have access to ultimate truth that all we have are successive approximations that hopefully are trending in the direction of better and better approximations mm -hmm. but that we're never actually touching upon the truth itself that's something that a scientist is comfortable with is that something if we if we think you know in terms of social engineering or 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 what have you, um, do people in general need to believe that they are accessing the ultimate reality of things, or or can we you know uh, can we believe that ultimately what we really have are are just uh, is just say a subway map. You know, and that subway map is getting us from point A to point B in, in the human world. Uh, but we really don't know anything from the subway map about the underlying terrain of the city. It's only telling us something about <laughs> navigating that city, but not telling us about the contours of the city itself. Um, as a, you know, as, a, as someone with a science background, I'm perfectly comfortable with that idea and letting go of uh, of any claim to um, to sort of contact with ultimate reality, but I wonder if if that's a workable you know way forward 
generally, you know, if people need to believe that um, that they have more than that. Hmm. And I guess, well, I mean, we need to probably uh, gradually start sort of wrapping this up. But I, I think that if we go back to the issue of young people and education and schools, um, I, I think it's very much also the question of how do people see themselves in relationship to this, uh, you know, underground system? <laughs> like, what's their, what's, you know, okay, so here, here we 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 have a some sort of a map of reality, but what's how how does that touch my life? What's my my place in all of this? And 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 how does that sort of bring meaning and purpose to my life? And I think this is this is where where we need to perhaps in future episodes talk more about how we can um, bring these philosophical perspectives to bear on the everyday work of schools and, and how can we, and, and not just, of course, schools as such, but I mean, how can we prepare the, the young generation um, for this new world that has, mm -hmm. uh, as, as, as you said, uh, Stephen, I mean, it's been in the making, but, but still I think that the way, the way that it has taken form now during the past couple of hundred years and perhaps even more so during the past 50 years, um, it's it's something very, very special. And it, it, it seems like we're at a, at a sort of a critical point of transition or even, even what in physical science is called a bifurcation point. We've come to a point where, where we really cannot carry on any longer uh, on the same trajectory that has that has carried us so far and that we are now going on and and, and uh, trying to to continue this trajectory will will as we can see now um result in in greater and greater catastrophes and 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 uh, suffering so somehow we need to prepare the young generation to not just to adapt to the world that we have created but to transform it and and then that's i think where we they will need to be able to bring together Athens and Jerusalem. So maybe these are some of the questions and issues that we can discuss further in mm -hmm. in future episodes. Yeah, that brings us back a bit to some of the, the themes we were touching on earlier. This, you know, this draining of, of meaning out out of the world um, that somehow has to be restored. And if you know, according to our current scientific conception of the world, we are just collections of cells with you know electrical impulses you know running between them and and if that's the end of it then um maybe that's part of the psychological crisis of the present day which which brings us to well what are we you know are we just physical cells collections of cells or is there something within uh and uh we didn't take debate earlier when the when the subject of spirit and soul came up but we're gonna i'm sure get get deeply into this um you know, is there a soul and what is the nature of that soul? Um, right. And there's so many different directions one can go with this, but, you know, just to, to throw out one possible direction. If, if we, if we see as, as Kant did that the world that is accessible to us purely is, is the appearances of things, which we organize by, but, you know, through our minds, but which leaves us no contact with the things in themselves, this invisible realm of capital T truth, capital R reality out there, which none of us have access to, but um, it's just uh, this ever-shifting world of appearances, you know, from which we construct these maps of meaning. Um, is that the best we can do? Or perhaps, you know, Perhaps, and this is an idea that, Sch that Schopenhauer had, and he was the direct su successor to Kant, and Schopenhauer's intuition was, well, maybe we do have access to the things in themselves. Maybe we have do have access to that ground truth layer of things, because ultimately the thing in itself is what, what he called will, and what we might call spirit, you know, just translating that word into uh, other language, or consciousness, you know. Perhaps that the thing in itself is actually within all of us, which gives us the potential to make contact with reality. 
you know, we are the thing in itself. We are the Kantian noumenon, you know, the, the, the thing in itself. And by virtue of, of, of each of us carrying within us a spark of that universal will, perhaps an ocean of which we are the waves and drops, uh, by participating in that universal will, which is the ground of all things, we can come into uh, closer harmony with it, both with it and with each other, recognizing within each of us that we all are instantiations of that will, of that spirit, of that consciousness. You know, we, we have a, a, lot of, a lot of different words we can bring into that. Um, can we do this in a scientific sense? You know, can we do this in a way that doesn't also bring in through the back door all sorts of, you know, superstitions and, uh, and you know, woo-woo nonsense that, um, that uh, there's, always a, there's always a temptation of bringing that in along with? Uh, can we do this in a way that maintains the, the, the structure of the world as we understand it, you know, and, and, doesn't, uh, and doesn't violate what, we've, what we understand of the world scientifically? But which can bring back in the idea of con of a consciousness-centered world. Um, the the great American physicist uh, John Wheeler uh, said that, and in connecting the concept of, of quantum mechanics, he says we live in a participatory universe. Mm -hmm. This is a universe that exists partly by virtue of the fact that we are in it as conscious observers, just making measurements, observing it, interacting. That's partly what makes the universe not just a bunch of separate atoms going about their own, you know, charting their own paths, but that makes it an interconnected whole. And and somehow I think that, somehow I think in that direction lies a new understanding of spirit. Um, an understanding of spirit that doesn't have to be tied to these sort of ancient and outdated and outmoded spiritual narratives, but uh, and which can be part of even an educational curriculum, I think. Yeah, but a lot. Of, there's so much to talk about. I think w w one of the problem with uh, these questions in education is that uh, there's a there's a possibility that we are we could transform the the youth, and um, mm. this idea of transforming. That's something that is very is is not politically correct to to uh, to have these ideas, mm. but but I I think young students is in a transformation uh, <laughs> age, they they are transformed transforming themselves, and I, I think it's 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 necessary for them to to have these kind of questions. So so and I think. One one of the one of the problem with the enlightenment um, project was that they, in in many ways it removed human from the world and from the universe, uh, and Kant was one of those. Uh, Immanuel Kant was one of those mm. thinkers that made a huge separation between the subject and the object, between mm. human and the world. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that was one of the one of the. I think that's something where we we, we need to remove that mm -hmm. distinction because we we, we are already in the world. We, and I mm -hmm. think that's is ex extremely important for uh, young people to understand that this it, it, we are not on a subway. Just uh, I think we we are all. In, in, in the same uh, train in many ways but then we could maybe we could ask um <laughs> we yeah we could maybe we can think that we have there are there are there are smaller trains in in the <laughs> in one huge train that is actually the world yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and talking about Kant, i think i think that what has happened in the world even maybe worse than than um, the separation of subject and object is that that humans who I think because I think that was at, I consider that one of the great insights of Immanuel Kant that human beings should always be anyway subjects I mean they should never be objectified and today what we have done is that we have created a world where 
certain material values have become the subject and human beings have become objects. And this is something that, that young people um, mm. feel on many different levels. They, they realize, for instance, when they come to school, that the school is not for them. They are there for, for the sake of the school. I remember one student once um, said this um, when I was visiting their class, uh, said that uh, nobody in this school is interested in my dreams. Every, my teachers only see me as some sort of a um, uh, bank of uh, grades. Hmm. And uh, so, yes, I, I think this is also something where we, we need to help the young generation and the world in general to see that everything that we have in this world has to be for the sake of human beings, um, uh, for, for the sake of human flourishing. And as, as Stephen was saying, of course, we have to then ask what is really a human being and what are those aspects of us. But, but right now, I think young, genera young people have become very much like <laughs> in the past, you know, um, Inca cultures where they used to um, uh, offer their their uh, youngest and fairest uh, people for to to sort of satisfy mm -hmm. the gods and, and and this is what we're doing we're we're uh, yeah offering our youngest and and our, the, the, our future hope for for satisfying the gods of materialism and that that perhaps has to change oh. okay anyway yeah. now lots of things to discuss next time yeah so so I would say that we we have, um, I think we have uh, pinpointed a lot of different kind of questions and thought yeah. that we are gonna present further on in new episodes. So I think we should say uh, goodbye for this time, and then we. Um, so I hope to also to of course to to talk more with the, both of you and and to to have new episodes on the yeah. program. So thanks. Looking forward to that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Timothy. Thank you. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Oversay. Nora Julis broadcast voice and technical support. Music is pieces of Advat Grieg's morning mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.